0: If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. So thankful to be here with you this morning. If you're a first-time guest, especially thankful that you are here. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. we will be in 1 John chapter 3. Friends, we live in a day when people readily reject the idea... That the God of the Bible is a loving God. There is this civil uh, religion or um, cultural type of deity in our nation, in our world that fits our preferences and our likes. But when we're talking about God and His biblical revelation of Himself and all that He has done throughout human history, there are many people who reject the idea that, this God who has revealed Himself in all of the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is, in fact, a loving God. To many moderns, He's just a cosmic killjoy or an aloof deity. The offensiveness of God comes in many forms to the modern mind, not least of all, the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Nothing could be more frustrating to the modern mind than saying the only way to eternity this morning is through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone. Yet I could think of no greater evidence to the love of God in my life and in your life than the very letter in which we have spent months now. Uh, Because it shows what genuine love really looks like. It, it, it shows through uh, John, uh, God's inspiration of these words, that real love seeks and aims at joy and fellowship with the triune God. It calls us out of darkness into life. It points out that there really is such a thing as false teaching, and it warns of the division and the difficulty that such false teaching brings. Love, the love of God, points us consistently to the atoning work and the advocacy of love, personified of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Not only does the subject matter of this letter convey love, but its composition. This is not just some theoretical musing of a man that has fallen in love with his own virtue. This rather is grandfatherly wisdom and love from a man who has walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. One who has not just spoken in terms of love, but who has walked in the reality of the concrete acts of the love of God. Again, like a spiritual grandfather, this man wants us to know how to walk in that love as well. He knows, John, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So it's, it's an impossible task to genuinely be loving apart from the person and work of Christ. It's impossible to actually know what love even is apart from the revelation of God In the Old and New Testaments. You see the world misjudges the loving character of God. In all of scripture in two ways. One. They make an inaccurate assessment of who God is in his person. They don't know him. People without the Spirit of God don't actually, they can read and be the best at being scholarly uh, in grammar and all the, those kinds of things in the Bible, but unless the Spirit births you anew into the kingdom, you won't understand who the living God actually is. And the world is guilty of that this morning. Secondly, the world judges God in His love Based off of a faulty standard. And that faulty standard is the love of the world. A passing, fleeting, self-absorbed type of love. So they look at God and they don't see Him rightly. And then they don't judge Him rightly according to what love actually is. So with that in mind, if you would stand to your feet as we do honor the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 16 of John's first letter, chapter 3. John, writing here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of the living God, he says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word to us today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence thankful for these words. We ask that you write them on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We learned last week in verses 11 through 15 the foundation of Christian love. It is that we have been taken from death to life. By grace alone, God has taken every member of the body of Christ who were at one time dead in their trespasses and sins. And Ephesians chapter 2 encapsulates this very succinctly. And He has brought us by sheer mercy alone and grace to life. Such that John can say of us, who are genuinely born-again Christians this morning, not mere decisionists, but individuals brought from death to life, spiritually speaking, that we are of God. That we emanate, we flow out of, not our own works, not our own decisions, not our own religion, but out of the works of Almighty God. What a powerful thing that is for the foundation of our love. And then he concludes... By reminding us that the, the, the culmination of those things, the fact that He has brought us from death to life, that we are of God, is the, the, the abiding reality that at this very moment, if you are in Christ, you have everlasting life abiding in you. You have the Spirit of God. These are the only, the only appropriate grounds for the love of that we have in the body. Now we can come together as mere fallen human beings and we can build temporary kind of love that I'm going to get to in a minute. We can build our church around things we love, the kind of love that is in the world. We can build our love around the name that's on the sign, around the preferences in the music, around political issues. We can build a type of like uh, on other things, but it'll never equate to actual Christian love. Christian love is bound together in the reality that we've been brought from death to life, that we are of God and that at this very moment we are indwelled by the Spirit of God. What a gift it is as we face this text this morning that we understand we've all fallen short but that we have a wonderful ground for our loving the body well. Because the way that we love, especially inside the body, especially the church, has vast implications. It, it's important from the standpoint of our own joy, our own fellowship with God, our own well-being. Individuals that don't love well are genuinely, generally rather, as as a general rule, uh, not well themselves. But it's also vital because of our corporate witness to a lost and dying world. And Again, John is in this chapter doing two things for us. He's reminding us of what ought to be. We ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. He's giving us an encouragement, an exhortation. He's also giving us a fitting test to measure our faith by. If we say that we are Christians, and yet we do not genuinely love on the grounds that he has given for genuine Christian love, we are not Christians at all. It's a hard thing to wrestle with, but again, it's all out of love. It's a wise older man in the faith coming to the church throughout all of the ages to make sure that we have the right canon, the right measuring tool for our faith. And because this is such an important matter, John refuses as our wise elder to leave us merely with a foundation. Even though it's the best foundation and an enduring foundation, it's not what he leaves us with. He goes on to work out the implications of this foundation of our being brought from death to life, being born of God, being indwelled by the Spirit. And he works that out into its practical implications. I want to warn everybody in this room today, what we are dealing with is a weighty topic because it is my goal and I believe the goal of John's writing and the inspiration of the text that none of us leave unwarned today. We all are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And today we come to a passage that will confront all of us in how we walk in light of the gospel, many Christians or so called Christians are self deceived, thinking that they're believers when they're actually not. And this, this particular passage and its weightiness is a hard pill to swallow. But I think it's one that is laid before the church out of love, out of kindness. Out of his desire that if someone is not in Christ, that it would become plain and evident to them that they might turn in repentance and faith and find grace and mercy. You see, what John does is he takes us from the heights of the cross and the joy that we have there in knowing that we have forgiveness in the atonement of Christ and that alone. And then he faces the real practical work of loving Brothers and sisters who are in need. So we must here be clear and exact in our understanding of this text, because if we err in one of two directions, we will wander either into false assurance and we'll give ourselves a pass because of our error, or we will wander into despair, thinking that this text says something that it does in fact, not say. Now I think the most reasonable error is to fall into despair. So we come to verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. I mean, that just jumps off the page. And how can any of us come this morning if we were to interpret those words as saying we have to love perfectly the way that Christ loves before we will ever be accounted as as Christians? How could we not come in despair? And many people have read these verses in a... Perfectionistic tone that would lead you to despair. But I think there's a helpful distinction that has to be made. And I don't believe that it's an artificial distinction, it's the distinction between loving someone and liking them. We are not called here to like everyone in the body of Christ, but we are called to love one another. So, what is the distinction? What is the difference? And we have to be careful that we don't just use this distinction to give ourselves a pass of being unloving and unforgiving and unkind in the body of Christ. But in fact, I think that it can be very helpful at understanding our impulses and responding contrary to them in love inside the body of Christ. Liking is totally separate from love like is something that is natural it's impulsive it's instinctive like is often kind of an off or on switch it's sort of like that little check engine light that is on your dashboard it's either on or it's not you know most cars maybe you've had a check engine light that gradually comes on and gradually goes off you need to get that checked out too if you have but that's beside the point Uh, Liking or disliking something generally comes in in black and white. Um, Certainly there can be shades of gray. I'm sure there's an argument for that. But generally it's instinctive. Um, It doesn't take intelligent. It it doesn't take thinking. There's just this impulse or reaction or natural bent to someone or something. Often uh, we base our liking something on superficial things. We find the foundation of our like in things like temperament or manners or appearance or mood. My mother doesn't like me at times because she sought to raise me to be a well-mannered young man who sends thank you cards promptly on time and does all of the things that she as a mother would aspire that I do. And I am a sinner and fall far short of that standard. And I can tell that at times she doesn't like that. She doesn't like the, 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 the mood that I'm in. My wife and I have joked often about the differences between like and love. When my wife says, I love you, I know I'm in trouble because she's telling me I don't like you right now. Used to be that everybody in the room wouldn't know, but I've told on her, so now you all know. Liking is a natural thing. It's something that even lost people have. In fact, I think most of what the world calls love is nothing more than like. It's nothing more than an affection for something based off of a lowly preference. Love is different. Love is something which, with which uh, we must think in terms of God. We can't understand love until we know God. We don't know what love is until we have come face to face with the love of Almighty God. The, the Bible tells us that the fool... This very morning, anyone who says in their heart, there is no God, that individual is a fool. It is a fool. This homest writes that says in his heart, there is no God. So by implication, the fool is also an individual who will say there is nothing really uh, substantive about what we call love. They can't know love because they don't know God. To love is to know the Lord. First John chapter 4 and just several verses from where we are this morning. Verse 8, the Bible tells us, John writes, God is love. Love isn't something that God does. Love is something that He is. It's through and through part of who He is. So no matter what God does, it is loving. Because that is who He is. But we come to this word love and there's nothing in the there's not another word in the English language and maybe this is arguable but I would submit to you there's not another word in the English language that has been more abused misused than the word love because people who are Dead in their trespasses and sins who don't know God really can't say that they love in the agape New Testament biblical sense. They, they can't understand love because they don't know who love is. Is And so as we work that out into a definition, we must understand that the most prominent thing about love is that it thinks, it reasons, and it reasons not in and of itself and not according to appetites in a natural sense, but genuine love reasons in light of who God has revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture, so if you come to the Word of God and you find God to be unloving, the problem is not with the Word or with God. The problem is with you and with your reasoning. Love does not depend upon the impulses of liking something. Love goes beyond the instincts. It doesn't end. Liking comes to what is the problem. I, if I preferred or liked a black piano I would come to this piano that's wood grain and say I don't like it and there's nothing else to do but just not like it we're done settled I don't like it I love wood grain so this is great but love goes beyond the obstacles of affection and sets itself upon its object regardless of what the obstacles are Love moves beyond the difficulties that our fallen state present and it moves beyond the mere dislikes and and, and goes and sets itself upon the object or person. All of this has to be true. If you believe the gospel this morning, this must be true. It must be true that love sees beyond the difficulty of sin, of unseemliness, of unlikability, because that is the only way that God could have ever loved you and I. To look beyond what was deserving of His wrath, which we deserved, and to set His love upon us in spite of who we are. And that is, in fact, the gospel. The gospel is that God, before the foundation of the world, set his, his affection, set His love upon a group of people and planned our redemption... And through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the application of that work through the work of regeneration in the Spirit, He has applied that individually to each one of us such that we have been brought from death to life, that we are of God, and that we have the Spirit of God abiding in us, and we have at this moment a foundation for loving the body as well. That is the gospel And friends, that is in fact why I reject wholeheartedly, unashamedly, and will for the rest of my life, any form of conditional election or conditional regeneration. Because if our coming to saving faith is conditioned upon any good work in us, anything that we do, anything that God looks down the tunnel of time and sees in us, then what God has done has ceased to be loved and it is only light. But our God has loved with an everlasting love. He has gone beyond. Friends, there is no reason to sing amazing grace if the only thing that our God has done is liked us. Our God has loved us. He has looked down and seen us in our fallen state and he said, I'm going to set my love upon them anyway. And as through, throughout the generations, the nat- nations have raged against the church and said, look what a mess she is. And as Satan has accused us, God has said, yes, but for my glory, I have set my love upon her, not because of anything in and of her, but because of who I am. That is the gospel and that is what it means to believe in unconditional election. That our salvation is not dependent upon or merited by anything that we do but solely based on who God is. He loved us, the Bible tells us, while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins. And beloved, I believe this morning that we do great violence to the word of God when we read into that text the world's definition of love. When we look at these words that tell us that He loved us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're really thinking in terms of like, that God had this gushy feeling towards us. That that God merely had an inclination to see something good in us, and so because of that He redeemed us, we have fallen uh, past uh, lower than what is being communicated here. Because what is being communicated is that in spite of us, he loved us, and and that love saw past who we are, and that love made us new. You see, there's a difference between our love and God's love. Our love is finite, it's fallen, can't change the individual that we set our love upon. If you don't believe that, you can come talk to my wife after the service. She's loved me for 16 years, and I'm still a mess. Amen? Amen. But God's love is not like that. His love is engaged in an action that ultimately results in the change that his love intends to accomplish. So when God sets his love on someone, his love actually accomplishes a real change. So why do we rejoice in our salvation this morning? Is it because anything has been conditioned upon us? No, it is because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts and that alone. The love of God cannot be about mere affections, natural likings. It's much more than that. What does this mean when we turn then, again, from infinite, the infinite triune God and try to apply loving as God loves in our fallen ability? Well, to love in our case is to treat those who we don't naturally like as though we actually did. It's to act in kindness even when we don't like something about them. The Bible doesn't come here and suggest that we are going to like everything about the body of Christ this side of heaven. Think about when Paul was coming to the church for the first time after his conversion on the road to Damascus. And here is the man who had martyred family members of the first century church. Do you think that all of those people had a great deal of like for this man initially? No. I think there was probably a struggle. I I, I think that that certainly was probably um, difficult for them. But they were able to love him because love, biblical love, looks past the obstacles knowing that they will eventually be dealt with either through the sanctifying work of the Spirit or through the judicial act of punishment in the final day. The question is, do men and women in the world do this? Do they love in this way? And the answer is no. Now, they may do it in an outward sense, and I do want to make a distinction. When when I'm suggesting to you that loving is to treat people, that you you have things you don't like about them as though you did, I'm not talking about in a hypocritical way. I'm not talking about uh, faking it. I'm not talking about the Christianese kind of smiling on the outside while you're shooting darts on the inside. I'm talking about a regenerate heart that can acknowledge the difficulties of things that you don't like in your own sinful state, but you move beyond them to love the person in light of what God has done for you. That is what true love is. And people in the world don't do that. Now, again, they may do so outwardly, but as, at best they play the part of the hypocrite. Most often, people in the world will treat other people according to whether or not they like or dislike the individual. But Christian love goes beyond all of this. We see in our fellow brother or sister church member. A purchased possession. In everything we don't like about them. We see the glorious reality. That God is molding them into the image of his son. Day by day. And that he has redeemed them, not because of a condition in them, but because of the surpassing worth of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was spilled for them. You see, Christians are able to act in spite of our feelings of preference because we have been loved when we were the most unlovable. In fact, this is The only way, the context of the gospel, the gospel that says we are brought into the body of Christ by the work of grace alone and not by our own ability. This is the only way that we can ever understand genuine Christian love. Look at verse 16. By this we know love. Now some of you will have in your translations the love of God. Um, There's a textual argument there. I'm just going to forego that argument and tell you that I believe that the ESV actually has the translation correct. By this we know love, period. Any form, any kind, by this we know love, by the gospel, by the atonement of Christ. We know and can be exhorted to love in like fashion the way that Christ did. Certainly we'll be limited in respects, but we can love in a similar way. We can love the brethren. We can move past our mere preferences into genuinely caring for the body of Christ. So as we continue to look at this, I want to highlight and emphasize the exhortation, the end goal of this text so that we can arrive at understanding rightly what is being spoken of here in its original form. We need to begin with the with verse 18. John writes, "Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth." So let's first deal with the negative. Let us not love in mere words or talk. Let us not love in mere theory and feeling. Uh, And this is true of the entire Christian life. We shouldn't just live our Christian life according to a philosophy, according to a feeling, according to words in our own speaking, in our own fallen words. We are actually to live out, not merely talk about the love that we say we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, It's easy, isn't it? To fall in love with the idea of loving without ever loving at all. I'll say that one more time. It's easy to fall in love with the idea of loving without ever loving at all. It's easy to come in and to hear a sermon on the topic of love and to be stirred emotionally. Or or to read a book on the topic of love. or, Or ladies, to watch. And some of you gentlemen, I know Charlie Hall is in this crowd. Not to out him but to watch Hallmark movies and to be stirred by the the love stories in them, which, in fact, if we understand the Bible well, are really just like stories, but like stories don't sell, so there's that. They're compelling. They're moving. They're emotionally sensational. And we can be in the middle of one of those movies that's just, you know, gushy and aww. Somebody walks in front of the TV in the middle of that and we find out whether or not we're really loving it all. Get out of the way! You see, when we come to the actual task of loving, it's a messy business in a fallen world. When the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, loving is not an easy task. And I promise you this, on the authority of the Word of God, it's not a sentimental one either. The love of God is not encapsulated in a Hallmark card. It's found only in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's easy to fall in love with loving without loving at all. And so John again says, little children, dear ones, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John is waving a red flag here in front of us. He knows that loving only in word and talk is ultimately a denial of the Christian faith. There is no way, in fact, to only love in word and thought. It's impossible. It's an impossibility in terms. Now, love thinks well, but it must not stop there. Love does have an understanding. It does have a, a, a viewpoint. It, does, it is something we should think deeply about. But what, what John writes here is that it must not stop there. Because if it stops there, if it stops merely at words and thoughts... It's not the kind of love that God has given to you. Have you ever noticed that the people in the world and especially in the church who talk about love the most, Christian artists, individuals who have come in and and want to teach about love inside the body of Christ, that, um, that often those are the same individuals who actually do the least amount of loving in a practical sense? They might give stirring speeches or sermons or small group talks about loving other people. But in the final analysis, often they're embittered individuals. They will say that we need to love the world. We need to love our enemies. We need, to be, we need to be kind. We need to be caring. We need to be molded into the image of what the world wants as far as love goes. This is the same group of people that will refuse to love their brothers in the body of Christ. In the early years of my ministry in this church, I was, I was struck by this. We have a loving church. I'm so thankful. There were many hateful people in our church at that time, if I'm honest, who behind closed doors would slander and gossip and ridicule other church members. And all the while, would smile on the stage on Sunday morning and say, look at me. Look at how I love other people. Friends, what this text soberly says, if you don't love the body, the rest of your love is worthless. And you beware of people who emphasize love over everything else because they often will lead you down a path of just worldly ambition. Love is delicate and it's not meant merely to be spoken of in Words. I think one of the things that Satan often does is he lifts lofty thoughts in our minds about how we are to live. And then he gets us to the point where we are so enamored with having the right thought about a thing that we never actually follow through and do the thing that we're thinking about. See, love must be expressed in action or it is not love at all. There is no, I love you, but I'm not going to help you. Now, love often takes on nuances of doing things that are hard in the lives of other people who may be caught in sin and the like, but love is not something that just sets back and does nothing. Take, for instance, these warnings in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaking in verse 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and then I will declare to you, to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now from there, he, he goes on, Jesus, to give two types of lives that is connected to this group of people who think they're Christians. And he says... And the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Do you not see that doing the Word of God in one another's lives is actually the definition of love? Doing is absolutely vital. Saying that you think about someone lovingly is not a biblical type of love. To love in the sense that the Lord wants us to love one another means that we take on the nuances of the Word of God and we live it out in moving in the direction of our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we go to Matthew chapter 5... There are three pictures here that Jesus gives about the doing nature of love, of, of, of the reality that we are to act upon the commandments of God. We have the picture of the ten virgins, the five who are wise and the five who are foolish, and we find at the end of that parable that the five foolish virgins are the ones who didn't take the oil. They didn't do what that was prudent, what was reasonable. Or we have the parable of talents, that the man who was given instruction but hid his talent in the ground in his money and did not make an investment. And we are told that he was faithless in that action. He did not act. He did not do what he was supposed to do. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 34, you'll remember these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will set on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep at his right but the goats on the left and the, then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by the father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world so the question that we have to ask in light of those maturing illustrations is this What makes a goat a goat and a sheep a sheep? A lamb a lamb. However you want to say it. Well, Jesus goes on to instruct us and point out the the difference between the two is that one helps and loves his brother and the other doesn't. Jesus reduces it down to actions. Verses 35-40 through For I was hungry... This is immediately following the passage of the division of sheep from goats. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it also to me. See, the reality is the goats who will be thrown out into outer darkness for all of eternity. They are the ones that lack the action of love. They might have loved in word and in thought, but they never did so in deed what marks you know when you walk or when you when you drive by a farm often the animals will be marked with an ear tag or with a brand or with something that identifies them as who they belong to what this passage teaches us is this all of the sheep that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ are branded with two realities and those realities are a love of faithfulness and work to one another So then we have to ask the question, where does this faithfulness and work come from? And we must see it in the correct order or otherwise we'll end up being just puffed up, proud, religious people and not actually lambs of God. The New New Testament does emphasize doing. It, it, It emphasizes the reality that we have a call on our lives to love one another, not just in our talk, but in our walk. Uh, The Bible also, the New Testament also, has this resounding refrain that our salvation is of grace alone by the Spirit of God alone. And so oftentimes, people come to these clashing ideas, these supposed contradictions, and they go, okay, well, which one is it? Are we working our way to heaven, or is it of grace alone? Well... We have to take each statement for what it means. We are saved by grace and not works. But there are these words of Christ in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who keeps my commandments is the one that loves me, Jesus says. So how do we resolve this apparent contradiction? Well, I believe that we resolve it by understanding the genuine nature of of love. There is, you remember, in Luke chapter 7, this illustration, this genuine narrative of this immoral woman, a woman of the city, many translations, will record comes in as Jesus is is dining with this religious group of people and she comes in and she washes the feet of Jesus with special ointments and with her tears and with her hair. And the individual religious people in the room are incensed. They're angry. Does he know? Who this woman is? Does she does he know what she has done? Her doing does not bear out that she actually is good enough to go to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus turns to these people and says, look, he gives them a parable of two debtors and one who owed a 100 denarii and the other who owed 50. And he asks, which one, if both of those debts are forgiven, will love more? And the response that is rightly given in verse 47 is, well, the one who has been forgiven more will love more. And Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What Jesus is saying in this narrative to these religious people and to you and I this morning is that love by nature always expresses itself. Love always is a verb. It always is an action. The reason that she came in here in front of the pious gas bags of her day and fell down at the feet of the one who she knew was her redeemer and washed his feet with her hair, the reason that she had the audacity to do that... It was because she had already been forgiven by grace and there was nothing left to do but to act on that and to give the very best that she could give. So her salvation is of grace and her works flow out of that reality. The, the woman loves me, Jesus says, because she's been forgiven much. You see, love in a human sense is always an action. We have to get that. Our works that we are called to, our actions are always though rooted as a reaction to something that has happened to us. Our love flows from the love that we have received from Christ through his grace alone. There are many people who will argue, it doesn't matter whether or not I agree that my salvation is by grace alone or whether or not it was my choice. But I promise you this, I have noticed in a few short years that there is a marked distinction in the love of someone who thinks that it's God's love towards them was conditioned on their response versus an individual who knows there was nothing in them that secured the love of God, that it was all of grace. The, the love that we see here in this woman is a response to the love that she had received. So the question is are those type of actions, is that type of response, is that type of overflowing gratitude for the love of God towards you evident in the way that you treat other people in your life? You see, the people that I was talking about earlier, the individuals who love to talk about being loving, individuals who just love in Thought and in word, ultimately, have a misguided love because love always has an object. And in the lives of those who don't love in action, the object of love is self. Because we like to just sit around and think and, and, and benefit from these grandiose ideas of love, but we're not willing to get messy in the lives of other people and actually act upon love. There is this Latin phrase, incurvitas in se, and that is that sin always curves around on itself. The, the, The sinner always turns inward. And when love goes wrong and turns into arrogance and pride, it's because we have thought so long about love, but we've never acted upon it. So John then goes on to apply this reality of love not just being, and I know that that was a long way, but... Uh, quickly that that he applies this practically. Uh, What he says in verse 17 is really kind of a case study and not a way of salvation. We don't work our way into being loving enough that God loves us. Rather, he is showing here that if, in fact, we have been loved with the everlasting love of God and we've been born again, we've been taken from death to life and that we are of God and that we have the spirit of God dwelling in us, then it will issue out in our caring and acting in love towards other people. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If anyone has the ability to give, to help, to love, sees a need, he says that he loves, He thinks deeply about loving, but he doesn't actually meet the need. He doesn't actually express in actions love. Then he doesn't know Christ at all. Christ's love does not stop at talk or theory. Christ's love terminated not in an academic pursuit. Christ's love terminated in concrete actions. While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He acted on our behalf. Beloved, I've witnessed this kind of love even this week in this body in many different ways where church members have loved other members in the body of Christ and it's an absolutely marvelous thing in a fallen world. When you see an individual who loves the the church of the living God and loves not just in word and talk but in actual deed, It's no small thing. You can be sure in those times that the Spirit of the living God is at work. So the question then has to be, how do we even know that this practical pattern exists? Well, how do we know that love is not just talk and thought, but work and faithfulness? That's what verse 16 answers for us. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and he and we ought to lay down our lives for the br- brothers paul in Philippians chapter 2, expresses a great commentary on this one reality that we know love only by the atonement uh, of Christ and the redemptive work of the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he writes in Philippians chapter 2 in these first 11 verses, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same Same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not on only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at at, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the fathers. Here is what we know. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, looked upon us. He knew our sin. He knew our wretchedness. And this was no light, mere trivial sin. This is the kind of hating God, spurning His name, running from Him, living selfishly, abusing neighbors. All of those things that were seated in our heart. Jesus looked down and He saw our helpless estate our trouble our sin our debauchery he saw that we deserved the wrath of god and yet he had compassion he didn't think of himself he didn't think of his rights he didn't think of his likes his preferences He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not think of himself because he was not concerned about himself. He was concerned about us. He thought of us. He was interested in our good. He was concerned about our being delivered and our being saved. And because of that, he laid aside the insignia of his glory. And he placed, in, he placed himself in the limited form of a small child in a manger. And he was born and laid in, in that manger. He, he, he was misunderstood. He worked as a carpenter alongside of his father. He, the, the Bible records that our Savior for our redemption grew in favor in in, in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. Jesus, your Redeemer, is a Redeemer that came down and took on lowly human flesh in the form of a child and went through the indignity of adolescence and growth and maturing into adulthood that He could accomplish your redemption. And one by one, seemingly the world rejected Him. And He endured the condemnation of sinners he endured the jeers and the scowls and the mockery and the slander and the suffering that he endured on the cross for your sin and my sin by this we know love we can't ever see love in terms of like anymore can we We can't ever see love as merely our natural impulse or affection. We can't ever go to our spouse and just say, I don't love you anymore without saying I'm failing to act the way that I should act. Because we have been given the inheritance of the atonement of Christ in this one phrase. By this we know love. This one phrase is charged with the fullness of the atonement of the living God. By this, by the work of Christ, we know love. The the work where he laid aside everything, even his own life, life in an act in love towards us. And so that teaches us this, friends. And this is what I believe John is saying. If we say that we love God, simply stated, this will be the reality it will come out in our actions. We won't wait for a program in the church. Uh, we won't wait for people to watch as we give money to the poor person. We, we won't wait for anything because we're not waiting anymore. We're like Simeon who said, thank God I've been able to behold my salvation. I've been able to see Jesus. I know that he is my redeemer. And I can depart in peace. And consequentially, because I can depart in peace, I can live my entire life loving people that I may not like. I can love people who slander me. I can love people who mock me. I can love people... Friends, there is no excuse not to love when we come to this one phrase. Herein we know love. Because we see the fullness of the atonement of Christ. See, we've not begun to understand the meaning of love until we see that He loved not because of any condition in us, but He loved in spite of every condition that was in fact in us. Love moves beyond like. And, and He has acted, not just spoke, spoken of that love. So let us then, beloved, hear this today. Let us not love in word or talk, but indeed and in truth. Friends, I want you to know the question isn't have you loved like Jesus has loved because none of us have loved with that same magnitude. The question this morning isn't have you failed? Uh, Have you loved perfectly? No, we've, we've all failed. The question is have we beheld the love of God In such a way, in the person and work of Christ, that it changes the way in increasing measure that we respond in our actions, in our deeds to others. There's something about this verse that's going to beg you to be a moralist. It's going to beg you to straighten up and love better. Do a better job. Sarah, love your husband better. I like that. That's not what John is saying. What John is saying to you and I this morning is that if we ever have a hope of loving one another in this church, we're not gonna look to modern man. We're not gonna look to each other to straighten up and fly right. We're gonna look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we're gonna not just look to him as some expression of a cultural civic deity. We're going to look at the redemptive work that he did on the cross. We're going to look at the historical acts that are recorded in the Bible. We're going to become students of who Jesus is, why he lived the way he did, the th- why he did the things he did for the honor, of glory, honor and glory of God. And as we come closer and closer to understanding who he is and resting in the love that he has for us alone, only by his grace, then... And only then will we ever be able to love one another. So not only is our salvation consequentially by grace alone, so is our love for one another. Would you pray for me? Pray with me and for me. Father God, thank you for the grace of this passage. Thank you for its confronting nature that we might stop today as members of the body, and consider, is the love of Christ really flowing out of me? Am I really loving as you have loved me? Am I really forgiving others the way that you have forgiven me? And if not, may we who are genuinely bought by the Spirit of God, might we turn in repentance and faith. And if there's one here today who's realizing, oh my word, I've I've totally lived my life expressing the word love that's actually only like. And, and I see Jesus as the only one who is genuinely loving. Might you give that individual a new heart that they might turn to you for saving faith. Father, we come this morning asking that we would continually rest in the glorious reality that you loved us with an everlasting love, that you look past everything of who we were, and set your love upon us, that you might receive glory for all of eternity. Father, might you help us to fix our eyes on you, that we would know how to live loving lives one to another.